Welcome to the Ford Hastings podcast. If you want to be the best business, you need the best leaders, and simply, we bring you the best leaders. Ford Hastings is an executive search consultancy that helps you transform your high-growth business. If you'd like to know more about anything Ford Hastings, please get in touch with Will at whastings at fordhastings.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Mike Lander. Thank you. Nice to meet you. And I'm here with Will. Hi. Here again. Uh, Mike uh, has kindly come and done this podcast with us and we're going to dive right in. Uh, Mike is a non-executive director. He's a chairman. He's had an eclectic career uh, in engineering, marketing, project management, business transformation, uh, business building, uh, and then non-executive roles. I think it'd be a great place to start, Mike, if we can just ask you for a little narrative about your career, sure, and, and we can ask some tangential questions off the back of that. Yeah, sure. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's been very eclectic. Um, so, if you look back to when I was kind of sixteen, um, I came from a very working class family. Um, my parents uh, were great people, very kind, very loving, but we, we didn't have any professional um, kind of friends around us. In terms of, we didn't have lawyers, we didn't have accountants, we didn't have bankers. Our friends were like, they were um, scrapyard dealers. Yeah. They were like, you know, petrol station uh, people. Were you born in local uh, to London? Based or? in uh, the Northwest, uh, so based in Stockport. Uh, so born in Blackpool, adopted, uh, and then brought up in Stockport. And so the reason I say that is because um, when a young person at 16 is looking for what do they do, it's really hard to say, well, I'm going to be the President of the United States if you don't know someone that's in politics, apart from you've seen, you know, George Bush or... You know, Bill Clinton on stage. So as a young person at 16, how do you know what you want to be if you've got no role model to think about that's who I'd like to be? So I ended up being an engineer So because I like fixing cars. I was very, very good to this day. I'm very practical. So I make things. So in my spare time, um, I'm assuming, by the way, I can just go off piece. Yeah, yeah please Fine. do. So um, engineer by training. Yeah, that's called 16 and got an engineering job. I'll come back to that in a second about how it, how it started. Before you do, you mentioned you used to work on cars and, yeah. and such. How did that come about? Oh, just because uh, me and my dad. So again, we didn't have money to go to a garage. So we basically um, fixed cars ourselves. Right. Uh, and so it went wrong, we'd fix it. Uh, and I just, I, I'm, I was just very good with my hands and very practical. I like learning how things work. And I think that learning how things work and building a model you know, plays into what I do in business. Did your dad impart that on you, or was that something that was sort of... My dad and my granddad. So my granddad was, a, was quite influential in my life. Uh, my grandfather was a, um, a difficult old bugger, um, you know. That's <laughs> their old, isn't it? That is their old. <laughs> and in those days, yeah, he was very difficult. He'd been through the First World War. So he'd been on a hospital warship and seen a torpedo hit the, hit the warship when he was on the warship. So he was on a hospital ship Crikey. in the middle of the ocean, and he was on deck. And this torpedo hit the side of the deck. It's called the War Order. I looked it up because I thought, this is granddad telling stories. No, no, it's real. You know, and he survived. A lot of the um, injured didn't. Did he Did he recount how he survived? Was it more luck? Than, or did he? Uh, it was a bit of luck. He went into the sea and they had lifeboats and they got picked up. But it was kind of you know, luck. Mm. And so that obviously shaped his life. Mm. Um, and he became, so he ran a corn shop. Uh, he worked in an engineering factory. And he was very practical. So in his garage, he had loads of tools. And as a kid, I was fascinated by his tools in his garage. And we'd make things. We made boats. And we made, um, the, the funniest thing we made was go-karts. So we made go-karts wow. out of 
three bits of wood, a couple of axle rods, and some wheels off the Rag and Bone Man. And you'd make those, and it had a bit of rope on it, the steering wheel, um, and there were no brakes. So you broke by basically putting your feet against the wheels. Flintstone style. Flintstone style. <laughs> and we'd career down the hill in this thing, and you'd kind of learn how to brake, or else you'd hit a lamppost. So that's how I learned. But that was my kind of like, I love making things. That was me. And so at 16, left school um, and thought, I'll, I'll be an engineer. So I'll go and find a job. And I went, I applied to loads of engineering companies in the Northwest and got rejected by all of them. And one rejected in particular, I'm pretty sure, shaped my kind of life, uh, which sounds a bit dramatic, but I think actually it, it, was, a, it was a real forming meeting uh, in my mind. So what happened? So basically, I went to a, a company, which I don't think even exists now, called Simon Engineering. Uh, and I went in for an interview. Apologies to Mr. Simon. If, yeah, if, if you're still here, exist. I'm a company still here. Global, doing really well, thank <laughs> you very much. This you, this was one of your workers. Um, and, the, and the apprentice manager, who was interviewing at the time, um, when he interviewed me and looked at my kind of school results, he said, well, you're not very bright, you're not very capable, you know, we don't think you'll make much of yourself. We might be able to get you to sweep the floor but we don't think you're an apprentice. Well, that's what you need to hear, isn't it, at 16? At 16. So that was the encouraging words I was being told as a 16-year-old, very shy, like really shy 16-year-old boy. And I just decided there must be something else. There must be something more to life than me sweeping the floor. It's got to be. And we very fortunately in the family had a, um, a college lecturer who lectured at the local engineering college. Lovely guy, uh, Eric Dearman, who's now sadly died. Um, lovely, lovely guy. And he said, look, let me talk to one of the firms that I work with and let's see if we can get Michael an apprenticeship. And Ferranti Engineering opened up an extra slot for me. Lovely. And I went in as an apprentice and it completely transformed my life. I hated school. I went to a, a, quite a rough secondary school, like a really rough secondary school, um, and didn't like that at all. Hence, I left at 16. And when I joined Ferranti as, as an apprentice, we did um, day release. So I went to college one day a week. Uh, and so I was 16, one day a week, four days in work, one day at college. And um, I loved it because all the stuff I was learning at college, I went back into work and applied. Because it was an, engin an engineering-based apprenticeship training course, it was a tech training course, everything they taught you was applicable back in the workplace. So, so from a young age, you were already indoctrinated into having a quick feedback loop. Absolutely. And tech experimenting, testing. And so I'm an active experimentation. I think my learning style is experimental, experimental learner. I'm a visual and experimental learner. So I've got a thing, I haven't thought about that, but actually, one of the things I talk to companies a lot about is, do a little, learn a lot. Mm. So you experiment, you run a little experiment in your business, you try something out, mm. and you spend 5,000, 10,000 on doing something, you see if it works. And if it works, you then work out, my only thing I say to people when, I, when they do that is, when you set up an experiment, You've got to think about the end game. If you set up an experiment that only works at a very, very tiny scale, then it's the wrong experiment. Right, so scale changes things. Correct. So you have to think about how does this scale up? If this works, can I replicate that experiment and scale the thing up? And So in, in, in Lean Startup uh, language, they call that validated learnings. Right. So okay. validate your learnings and... and I guess the subjective thing often is to come up with the what they call minimum success criteria Correct. for validating that. Yeah. But as you say, even the validation of the experiment at that stage doesn't validate 
the thing as it scales. Correct. But it does increase the probability that it that that it will. You're just trying to increase your the likelihood of the thing working is what you're trying to do. And so yeah, so as an active experimentation uh, person, always happen. And the visual side, Brad, do you think that maybe came from the uh, working on cars, working with your grandfather? And yeah, and working as a, a, an electrical engineer. Um, so I, um, if you ask me to look at a three D model and rotate it in space, I can't. Impossible. You're not the only one. Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Same with geography. I am geographically challenged, dreadful. But if you give me a two D model of something and say put that together, yeah. I can do that. Okay. Or if you give me a picture of a, as I do with Leo all the time now, we build Lego sets. Leo so give, is... Uh, Leo's my son. Uh, so Leo's six years old. Um, so um, what we do is that we buy a Lego set and we build things. Um, so if I can see the picture or we follow the instructions, we like to build things. So he's learning that he kind of likes building things as well. That's lovely. That's because he likes spending time with me because it's a way of spending time together. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so um, I loved being at college, loved doing day release. And then one, one year I got a call from the college, from Stockport College. No, a letter. And the letter, I opened the letter, and it said you won student of the year. And I rang the college and said, I think you've made a mistake. Generally, I rang them up and said, this is wrong because I never did very, very well at school. And you've been told previously you're no good. I'm no good. And you're introverted and shy. Correct. And they went, no, you've won student of the year out of about 60 students in the year. You won the college prize. So having got this letter and called the college and they validated that actually I had won student of the year, I sat there and went, wow, if I'm placed in a learning environment, which is practical and it interests me, I seem to be able to do pretty well. And I think that's so applicable in everything you do in life, and particularly in businesses, is that... Say that again, Mike. What's the lesson? So the lesson for me is, if you go on a course, and it's just a course because you've been told to go on it, you're unlikely to do really well. If you go on a course because it's linked to some work you're doing, and the work's your passion, and the course is reinforcing the kind of work you're doing, and you're passionate about it, you're likely to do really well. And in businesses, if you talk to entrepreneurs where it's gone really well, 95% will say it was a passion. They often started it without really thinking through financially what it was going to mean to them in many ways, but it was their passion. And they're often very, very good learners. So they've got in them a learning gene. So I'm a lifelong learner. I'm always trying to learn something. And I think that you know, when you find that magic combination of kind of passion, hard work, and you know, lifelong learning, yeah. that's a very powerful combination. And that will take people a long, long way. I mean, I want to touch on it um, in, in a moment, but it'd be good to briefly just ask you regarding the, the learning elements. You've said there that if you're passionate or interested, um, the feedback loop is, is quicker because you want to learn and you want to get feedback. What are your thoughts on the education system? <laughs> the sort of um, staged learning where everybody's undertaking the same thing? Yeah. Um, that disjoint compared to personalised learning, um, finding your passions and exploring those. And I want to talk about it later, but if yeah, yeah, yeah brief touching it now. Yeah. So I've worked in the education sector. So we actually ran a very large scale reform program in public sector education. So I've seen it from a, um, a, a provider side, where we ran thousands and thousands of courses for um, 
schools, which was basically about, that was about how do you get an integrated school workforce to solve kind of problems that require cross-functional working. So I saw a lot of schools and I saw a lot of educationists and I met some very, very senior educationists in the education um, sector in the UK. My, my overriding concern about, and this is maybe a little bit philosophical, about education in the UK is we have a national curriculum, we have a teacher in a classroom, we have 20 or 30 pupils in the classroom, and the teacher's job is to take them through the national curriculum at some speed, yeah. and hopefully everyone's kind of broadly at the same level, and hopefully they all kind of learn, and teachers do a great job, they definitely do a great job, I've seen lots in action, very good friend of mine's a very good teacher, it's, it, I would not be a teacher, it's a very, very tough job. But I do wonder, this kind of national curriculum, one-to-many model, I think needs challenging, which is surely you want a national database of learning, a many-to-many teaching model where a child can access learning online, can be tutored by older children, younger children, qualified adults in a safe online environment, yeah. safe online forum, blended with classroom learning. That's interesting. So a blended learning. I mean, the reason I ask is because if you look at the, you know, the, the inception of the internet over the last 20 years and then yeah. how it's taken over our lives, and we were discussing earlier about courses on YouTube. Mm. And frankly, you can learn if you want, if you have the will, which is, which is something else to talk about. But if you have the will, you can pretty much learn whatever you want yes. online. Um, with, with a few Google quite searches well. to high, yeah. quite a high level. And and that is almost a primitive form of personalised learning. It okay, it's not guided um, other than through the self, um, but you haven't got anybody else helping to sort of meander your journey and, and plot a better course. But it is a, a first version. Yeah. And you've seen an explosion Absolutely. of people learning and also providing courses. So you can see that there is an evolution in in education in that regard. Yeah. And the question I want to talk about later is, do you think that's something the existing institutions are going to embody, or do you think you're going to have two distinct ways of learning? So I think we're going to have two distinct ways of learning for probably two or three generations. And I think that's because there's a mindset within the education establishment, uh, and until that mindset changes, uh, and that will be changed through generational movement of people becoming teachers that are younger, and that have gone through that learning model and want to adopt something different. Mm. Um, so I think it's going to take generations before that happens. I, I, I'm a big fan of you definitely need teachers in classrooms. There's a very good program on um, BBC Two I've just been watching, which was about how uh, these massive deals changed the world. And the one that was on last night, or one that recorded, I think, was actually about in the States. They're now adopting um, several teachers in a very large uh, library uh, with 100 students, all doing online learning. One's learning about astronomy, one's learning about geography, one's learning about politics. And they ask questions online, and it's a, uh, the learning journey is at your own speed, and then you call over a teacher, they can help you, uh, and then it's all assessed, and they do obviously look at, are children falling behind, are they staying the same? Uh, and it was very interesting. And then an expert came on from the UK, who was a policy expert in education. And she said, yes, but it's not improving anything. Things haven't, all the evidence says, things haven't improved dramatically. And I'm like, she's got entirely the wrong lens. Yeah. If it's 
if the learning outcome is the same, but the experience for the child is 10 times better, then that's the way forward. Yeah. It's a win, isn't it? Yeah. It's got to be a win. And you can't, see the, win. you can't see the second order effects as in the impact that's going to have on the child in 20 years' time. Exactly. Correct. And they were all quiet. What was interesting was I've been in many classrooms. Everyone was quiet. Now, why is that? In many classrooms, you have a disruptor or two or three disruptors. And that slows down the learning of the group. And what the teacher often does is they'll put a teaching system with two or three disruptors to kind of like calm them down and to see if they can uh, pick up the speed again. Whereas in this environment, that didn't happen because kids are picking what they want to learn. Engaged. So they're engaged. They're engaged. <clears throat> and if you think about, you know, the forthcoming advancements in AI machine learning, um, you can soon see an algorithm helping to shape your learning journey based on feedback. So they were talking about algorithmic learning last night. And I'm, uh, I think that's absolutely the way forward. If we can get algorithms now to do the work of entry-level lawyers on checking documents, I'm pretty sure we can get algorithms to teach young people basic levels of curriculum and ask intelligent questions. They were talking about IBM Watson. Clever, clever piece of development. You know, IBM Watson went on Jeopardy, uh, the program, and um, it won. Against the, they had one program. This is back in I don't know. I think the late nineties, early two thousands, um, maybe late, maybe later than that. I don't know. Um, when they launched Watson, and uh, they looked at Jeopardy was the program in the US that inspired IBM to develop Watson. And I'm like, I never knew that because it was someone asking someone random questions, and if they got the answer right, then they win obviously more money. And they said that'd be a great test for an AI piece yeah. of software because you cannot predict what the question is going to be. And I don't know when it, I don't know when this program was. I should look back. It may have been you know 2010. I don't know. But the point was it beat the expert. And they all sat there and went, "Okay, <laughs> something in this. <laughs> something in this. Yeah. There is something in this." I know. I know. In in more recent years, DeepMind, which Google bought, developed uh, something called AlphaGuy. Right, and uh, that was a, uh, I think, um, using neural nets yeah. um, to learn the game Go, which right. is yeah, an yeah. um, Asian game, and I think there are, there are more Go, um, Go board situations and atoms in the universe, or some statistics right. like that, um, and it's, and therefore it's deemed a very creative game, very simple game, but a very creative game, um, and. This deep mind company made made Alpha Alpha Guy and it played the European Go champion and then the World Go champion, who's known as a legend in yeah. Go history, and it won for four games or so. And then it took the engine Deep Mind and created Alpha Zero, right? And it gave Alpha Zero the rules of chess, and it gave it four hours to play itself. It didn't give it any past data, any past games right. to, to learn from history. It just gave it four hours to play itself millions of times. And it had to play a computer chess engine called Stockfish, which uses a brute force method. It assesses every possible move, and I guess it weighs it in terms of probabilities yep. somehow and makes its moves. So it does millions of moves per second calculation. And Alpha Zero does something like 80,000 moves per second. So it's a lot less mm -hmm. using uh, the neural nets and um, machine learning, etc. And it played 100 games. It drew 76 and 124. And Stockfish wow. is known as, you know, this yeah, un yeah. unbeatable yeah. chess engine. 
um, which shows the advancements we've exactly. made in this tech. So you take that and, okay, you take the industry as a whole and you think we're at the inception of it. Yes. And in 10 years' time, where would it be? And exactly. what can it do for for good and bad, yeah, yeah. depending on the people um, using it for humanity? But ed- from an education perspective, yeah. you know, you can personalise learning. You can, exactly. You know. Excellent. Thank you for that, Mike. Um, let's go back to the work history. Yeah. Um, so if you can carry on, that'd be wonderful. Sure. So, um, yeah, so I thoroughly enjoyed being an apprentice. I was an engineering apprentice. And then at the age of 21, uh, I kind of decided to go off and do a, uh, an engineering degree. Um, so I went to university late. So I'd done my tech diploma and then went off to university to Sheffield to do an engineering degree. And again, I met some amazing people there. Um, loved the course, loved the people. Uh, found it really hard because I hadn't come from A-levels. And so you arrive at university and their day one refresher course is about a year ahead, two years ahead, three years ahead of where my learning was in maths. That must be really tricky. Actually. Which was quite yeah. tough. <laughs> so, but they, they go to the university, they ran catch-up courses and we got through it and we were fine. Um, and then from there, I went back into engineering uh, and I left the Northwest and came down to Hull uh, Hempstead, uh, down to London uh, to work for an engineering company down here. And the reason for that was, it, back, this is back in, so I was then 24, so this is back in 1988. Um, and it was quite clear then, even back then, so the you know, late 80s, early 90s, engineering was starting to be offshored. So it had become quite clear that actually a lot of the jobs were going to start to go. In that time, it was going off to the Far East, um, and the engineering was becoming quite a narrow discipline. Um, and over the next kind of four or five years at uh, Crossfield, where I worked, um, I wanted to get to management. So I wanted to run a business. When did you When did you think that or, or come to that conclusion? I'd always wanted to run my own business. I think from a very early age, I kind of, for some reason, wanted, I think I saw my grandfather, maybe. He ran his own business. He ran the corner shop. I wanted to do that. Um, and so uh, I think, yeah, I started to think about, well, I want to do something broader than engineering. What can I do? I was doing research, uh, as always, uh, and at the age of 28, 29, I went to Cranfield, did an MBA, which was amazing. That was really, really amazing. Um, and that the reason for that was I wanted a broad business education. Uh, and the number of people, this goes back to, you know, and you hear, you're hearing it a lot in the kind of press at the moment, and you're hearing it a lot online, um, whereby people say, you'll hear thousands of people tell you something won't work. There'll be no end of naysayers. So if you tune into the naysayers, you'll never do anything. And at that time, when I left my engineering company, um, the company I was working for as an engineer, um, all my friends were saying, you're crazy, you know, what are you doing? You've got a salary. You've got limited savings. You're going to spend all your savings on this course to do what? To, to do something different. And I went, yeah, I am. It's Absolutely. It's also because I, I guess our default setting is comfort, right? It is. As people. And your peer group see you doing something and it yeah. makes them have, you know, from an ego perspective, question, why aren't I pursuing my things? And to protect itself, it has to, it has to say, as say no, that's this, isn't, this is crazy. What are you, you can't doing? Stand out from the herd. Yeah, correct. Protection. Yeah. yeah, I think the Australians call it tall poppy syndrome. Tall poppy. Yeah. <laughs> you want to chop the heads off all the poppies <laughs> so that you're all the same level. Yeah. <laughs> Heaven forbid someone stands out from the crowd. Mm. And so I went off and did it. Um, and it was a great year. It was a tough year. I loved it. 
uh, and then from there... It's quite different from, from the 16-year-old that was told he could only sweep floors, you know, and it's not very long after, really, in the grand scheme of things. Correct. I just decided it was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do what it takes to be my own success, whatever that meant at that time. Um, and so, yeah, so I left. Uh, so I finished my MBA. I got through the MBA, did very well. Uh, and um, I went from engineering project management into banking marketing. Barclays. Barclays, that's right. And I dwelt my salary. The year I left my MBA and joined Barclays, I moved from Hemel Hempstead Engineering Project Management to the central London um, banking and marketing. And I doubled my salary. And all of a sudden, my friends were like... Applying to Cranfield. <laughs> <laughs> They're all going, do you still have that business card? Seems to work out quite well for Mike. <laughs> And I had a great time. So I, I spent you know, a, a long time in London as a kind of single guy, just having a lot of fun. Really enjoyed being in London, enjoyed being in a different sector, having a different discipline, uh, just doing something different. Um, spent a, quite a few years in Barclays, in marketing. Uh, at that point, there was a big transformation going on within Barclays, which was around the payments industry transformation. And Barclays had engaged McKinsey as their consultants to run a big transformation program on the global payments industry. And they were looking for, so McKinsey came in, they wanted client-side consultants to work with them because you always want the client-side team working with the management consultants. And they were looking for volunteers. And I said, yeah, that will suit me. And because the bank wasn't quite sure what to do with me, I'd done very well in marketing, in banking, but the bankers were like, an engineer in marketing, it's a bit strange, it's not quite, it's not quite the fit they were looking for. And so the Client-side projects were brilliant for me because it used all the skills I've learned in the MBA. It applied them in a real-life situation back to the same thing I learned at college, learned some theoretical models, applied them in a practical situation. Um, and McKinsey taught me to be a consultant. I mean, they were, you know, if you ever want consultancy training, there aren't many better than people like McKinsey. Just brilliant. So did you get practical on the job training? Yeah, yeah. So they basically taught me how to be a consultant how to analyze a complex situation, how to break it down, how to build logic. There's a very, very good book, if people haven't read it, called Pyramid Principle by Barbara Minto. And it's all about how you write logical stories. It's a fantastic, really fantastic book. Even now, and that's going back, must be she wrote it 20 odd years ago. And she was an ex-McKinsey partner, I think. And it just talks about inductive and deductive logic. You talk about Sherlock Holmes, Yep. You know, <laughs> he's trying to piece together lots of different bits of information and work out what does it mean. Uh, and yeah, her book on deductive and inductive reasoning is just a very good book. There's actually a wonderful book called A Few Lessons uh, on Sherlock Holmes. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, that, that explores deductive and inductive reasoning. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so I, I learned from McKinsey and then I finished that project with Barclays and I then went on to another project, which was restructuring the retail uh, banking industry. Uh, within um, Barclays within its wider context. And that was with PricewaterhouseCoopers. Again, excellent consultants, learnt a lot. Um, so a lot of our listeners will be SME yeah. work and the idea of business transformation in, in a global organisation um, sounds frightening almost. How, and I know a number of parties and stakeholders are involved and you're building up cases over a long period of time. Is it possible to break down, in layman's terms, 
what a transformation might entail. Basic steps. Sure. Um, so at that scale. At that kind of scale. So some basic things you're looking at is you're saying what's happening in the industry. So you're saying, you know, take examples today. If you were in the payments industry today and you were a payments provider, so you're a bank and you accept and make payments on behalf of your customers, and you looked at what's happening in that industry, you'd look at PayPal, you'd look at WorldPay, um, you'd look at Contactless, uh, and Contactless on your phone, and you'd say, wow, that industry's changed a lot. I wonder if a traditional bank is going to be able to be as successful as an entrepreneurial startup in Silicon Valley in that payments industry. So transformation really is all about either something's happening, normally something's happening in the industry, which is quite disruptive, and it's starting, but it hasn't um, got to critical mass. So a transformation program is all about something's happening in your industry, and you're, you're concerned about where this might go for us as a company. And if you took transformation, so basics about industries go through a period of change, you sit there and recognize that and go, what do I do about it? So the word transformation is really about how do I respond to that change in that industry? What am I going to do? And if you're an SME, the same thing occurs. If you're an SME and you've been going for like 10 years and you're in a certain industry, and you start to see around you lots of machine learning technology starting to disrupt the model that you currently run, well, you need to have a little mini transformation. You sit back and look at it and go, is this going to impact my business in the lifespan of my business? So, if you're about to close your business or retire, and maybe it doesn't affect you. But if you're in your 30s and you're building this business, and around you things are disrupting your business model, you're going to have to think about that and work out how do I either adapt to the new model that's coming up? How do I be a disruptor myself? Mm. So how do I cross the chasm mm. and work out what I'm going to do to disrupt this industry? But as an, as an SME, that's really daunting. Mm. Because you sat there going, I've built this business for 10 years. We're a million pound turnover. There's only like 15 of us in the business. And it's taken me 10 years to get here, and all of a sudden there's a two-year startup, and they've completely, uh, they've made a huge splash about something they're doing that is innovative, and I've got to what, go through this cycle all over again? Is it, I guess it's an SME paradox in the respect that they're small enough to be agile and move quickly relative to a global organisation. Yeah. You know, we're talking about scale change. And exactly. Things, but, you know, the, if so, it's hard to change an object's... Uh, direction if it's moving in a direction. But having said that, the cost of trying something new is a lot higher in the respect that if they fail, yeah. the consequences are often bigger. So it's a very, very, very good prompt, which is, so I looked at, um, I took one of my businesses that I bought uh, several years ago, and I tried to transform it into something different. Um, in the end, it worked out. On the journey, it almost killed the business. And something I say to a lot of companies I work with now is, let's say you're doing a million pound turnover, and you are looking at actually doing something quite radically different as an add-on, which may in fact replace your existing business. The thing for me is, if you've got, say, 
£200,000 on your balance sheet. If you put £50,000 into that new venture and it doesn't work out, you've not killed your business. If you put £150,000 into that new venture, you've destroyed the mothership that's generated the cash in the first place. So my belief, and it's not everyone's commonly held belief, my belief is don't, don't bet the farm on this new venture because the likelihood of new ventures working is really small. You've built a business, it's working. The industry might be going through quite a lot of change, but you've got to work out, can I adapt to that and be a, what I would call a fast follower? Yep. I'm not a great believer in first mover advantage. I'm a big believer in first prover advantage. I'd much rather people trail the blaze and work out how it's not going to work. And then when they've worked out the model, I'm happy to come behind them. I'll make less money than they will, but I'll probably have a less risky business. But that's just a personal point of view. So from the from the, the balance sheet, I mean, first of all, I'd like to know what business you're talking about. So yeah, such yeah. an moment. From the balance sheet example you gave, you're effectively saying maximize the number of options you have to to transform. Yeah. Um, and only only bet on the whatever model it is you're trying to move into relative to say the edge that you have that yeah. is going to turn out successfully. Yeah. So I think an invest I think they call that the Kelly criterion in, in investing where okay. you, you bet relative where you bet <laughs> relative to the edge that you have. Okay. Um, and I think if you read the Black Swan they talk about optionality. Right. So you know and um, I think in corporate innovation they talk about small bets, you know, effectively. So right. like, don't do anything that bankrupts the house. Or as a nice analogy, don't play Russian roulette. Don't do something that Absolutely. Can kill you. Why would you do that? Because it would, if it can kill you and you can't manage the risk, being an entrepreneur is all about managing risk. It's not about being a, um, a carefree risk taker. It's about managing risk. All entrepreneurs that succeed manage risk. That's what their instincts are all about. Um, and so, yeah, you've got to look at your, so I, I call it your surplus above kind of like, you know, working capital. You know, if you need £150,000 working capital over it to make sure that your business you know, is um, solvent and uh, growing and you can reinvest in the core, um, above that, if you've got 50 k surplus and you're wondering, do I put it through as dividends or do I invest in something? Yeah, that, that's a good sum to invest because 50000 is enough to, you can do something meaningful with fifty. You can do something meaningful with 10000 um, but yeah, I, I would look seriously at you're looking for optionality. Before you tell us about the, the business where that occurred for you, if we look back at the large scale transformation stuff you did, and you said it's about assessing the industry and um, trying to see if it's something you should be doing as a business, or if there are any threats, or yeah. so it's, it's a reactive, it's a reactive mechanism yeah. in a way. The, the question I have is, and I think that I think the, they call this the innovators' dilemma. Yeah. Is that so Christensen? Yeah, if you if you take PayPal, twin, whenever it was made, twenty years ago, whenever Elon and Peter decided we're yeah. going to do this multi-million pound business. Oh, by the way, guys, I'm going to launch a space rocket in ten years. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, and a car. Yeah. <laughs> before, uh, when they when they made PayPal, it's tiny. Yeah. It's guys and it's guys in Silicon Valley hacking yeah. away at a computer. Barclays or whoever are going to look at this. 
wouldn't think they may not even look at it, but they're going to go, it's tiny, it's a million pound venture. How could it ever be a threat? It's not going to be a threat to us. It's too small for us to worry about. Correct. Um, and before you know it, PayPal blows up. Yeah. And, and then you get the innovation. You know, exactly. Them. How, so how, from a transformation point of view, how do you, how do you deal with that? So that's a problem of, and it, it did happen in the payments industry. I ran a very big payments industry project back in 98, uh, and we showed an organization uh, that was a traditional payments organization, um, a model in Sweden. Because they said, this will never happen. All these small things you're showing is irrelevant. And we showed them, I think it was a video, of in Sweden, uh, people were buying chocolate from a vending machine with a phone. And we said, the problem is, as a payments industry, it's not the banking industry you've got to be worried about. It's the telcos you've got to be worried about. The telcos have a natural billing engine yeah. and an infrastructure. There's no reason they can't become a payments provider. And sure enough, if you roll you know, the scene forward 20 odd years, yeah, you can now pay by phone. So it's now traffic over their network uh, and they're working with the banks. So the smart things the banks did is they worked out were better off working with the telco industry than trying to fight them. So part of a transformation might be let's look at our strategic partner and yeah. let's look at who we can acquire. Yeah. Let's look at the best way that we can allocate our capital such that we can benefit from this change. Exactly, this wave that's happening. Okay. And I think the, I think the point you touch on about what stops someone from, what stops a leadership team going on that journey is, and this is where the entrepreneur is very dangerous, I think. Entrepreneurs by their nature are pretty self-assured. So they've picked a journey. They've picked a direction. So they've worked out where they think they're going. If, unfortunately, along that journey over here, something's happening, which is an opportunity or a threat, sometimes they will convince their leadership team, we're going to plough on. There's this whole thing about, again, if the naysayers are saying, this is going to happen instead, do you stick to your plan or do you adapt to this new plan? It, it's there isn't an answer to that. It's very tricky. It's one of the questions I wanted to ask you actually, because you you can take the Warren Buffett school of thought, yeah, Hathaway, um, and I read a lot of his works, and he basically says some, something like, take a punch card with twenty holes in it. Each hole represents a key decision you need to make in your life, and the punch card is a life, right? And and you compare that with uh, play within your circle of competence, mm -hmm. something else he says. So he says play within. Play, you know, yeah. be risk averse almost he in does. that regard and go deep. Yeah, exactly. But then you can take a Talib, Nassim Talib school of thought, which is maximize optionality. You know, and, and, and we can talk about a business that is uh, looking at where the market is moving and, and looking at other business models using its surplus cash flow. Yeah. Which one is right? So, um, so all, all I can say is, what do I do? I've always looked at what is it that I'm really good at? compared to my peers, what is it I've got that um, makes me, or could make me, unique? And the, the businesses that have succeeded broadly have kind of played to that thing. Is that, because my own expertise, even though things are changing around me, the industry I'm in is changing around me, all of the lessons I've learned over the past 20 years in, for example, consulting and growing small businesses. So I've got a lot of experience now about how you grow a business from half million to 10 million turnover. 
So I know what that looks like. And I've got lots of friends who've done it and lots of business colleagues that have done it. So I've got a pretty good idea how that works. So irrespective of what industry that's in, there's some basic things you have to get right to make that model work. And so I base upon, so I'd, I'd call that core competencies. So I believe that in, in strategy terms, I'm a kind of core competence person. The time that I tried to step out of my core competence into a market that I thought was growing that I knew not a lot about, but it was an attractive market, um, it failed drastically. Oh, tell us about that. <laughs> Before you do, so you are a, a play within the circle of competence. I ma maximise your circle. Maximise And continue to grow the circle. Correct. Play within the circle. So a good example is the consulting industry. Very interesting in the last 10 years, 20 years. If you go back to the kind of early 90s, I guess, and look at the consulting industry. The consulting industry then was about large firms that had huge scale, global footprints, very, very capable people working with big corporates. Um, and that was the model you kind of bought into. If you were an SME, you were buying individual advisors, people that you knew normally. If you look at the consulting industry now, that still exists, but you can also go to online marketplaces where you can pose a question to the online marketplace and thousands of consultants will make you an offer to solve your problem for you virtually which you may never meet face-to-face, -face, you'll meet them on Skype. So my core competence is I'm very good at consulting and building businesses, but I've spotted that's definitely a trend. And in fact, I now act as a virtual consultant to organisations through a platform that I subscribe to. And indeed, number 87, our online community is effectively that. Correct. You know, where people are advising each other exactly. in a formal manner. Sharing your expertise. Which you're part of, my expertise. Exactly, I am. Which wasn't a sell, um, but that, that is back to an important point. You play to your competencies, but you have to have a deep understanding of that competence and you have to be very uh, open to what's going on around you uh, about how that competence is being deployed or used in uh, a different way. So what was your failure? Because it's good to hear the, the failure. We, we, you know, we can all paint a picture of success. It's, it's... Yeah. But it, we all know internally on our own rap sheet that we've got many more failures than we have successes. Exactly. So what was the big failure that we um, So I ventured into the Middle East. So I basically had an education services business in the UK. And what I did was... And how uh, did that come about, just to get some... Oh, I, I bought a company. So back in 2006, I bought an education consultancy company. Of two guys that I knew, I raised £3 million of debt off Bank of Scotland. Back in the heady days when as an entrepreneur you could walk in and you could raise money uh, to buy businesses. Did you have to secure that against anything? No personal guarantees at all. Uh, and in fact, the contract was cancelable within one month. Uh, but it had a very, very large client sat behind it, so it was unlikely to happen. But the bank took a view, which is great. So I borrowed £3 million and bought this business. Again, all my friends at that time said, you're crazy. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, I put my own personal savings, all of them, into that, um, not quite all, no, about 75% of them, into that business when I bought it. And you'd say, well, hang on, Mike, before you were saying, don't do anything that's going to bankrupt you. Well, it wouldn't have done. I was a single man. I was renting a, a property. You know, I was a, a billable consultant. All I'd done was taken capital I'd saved and said, I'm prepared to invest that. And if I lose it all, 
I'm prepared to build that over the next 10 years. Sure. Happy to start again. Yeah, happy to yeah. start again. I was happy to start again. But it didn't mean that I'd stop eating. It was a calculated risk. Um, so it was like a what's the worst ca- that can happen type scenario. It was. I'll, I'll be working and building my pot again. Correct. Um, and it worked out really well. I mean, that company became uh, bigger, successful, very profitable. Um, but on that kind of journey, what happened was... Um, the business was serving a very large client. It had one big contract. That contract was going to end after four years. So I knew I had four years when I had to find alternative sources of income. So I, I, I basically placed a number of strategic bets uh, on new lines of certain new products and, and uh, lines of service business. One of which was delivering educational services in the Middle East. Um, so I went from the UK to the Middle East country I'd never worked in. I went from educational services in the UK to a different type of service in the Middle East that I hadn't personally delivered, but a lot of my colleagues had. Um, In a market, we didn't understand how it worked, really. We knew of it, and we had people out there that kind of had been involved in it, but we didn't really know how it worked. Did you feel uneasy at the time? Did you? Yeah. Within yourself, upon reflection? Yeah. There was always something niggling inside me going, this is a long way away. I don't know the local culture. I don't speak Arabic. Um, you know, I don't know who these clients are. We haven't worked with them before. These are quite big contracts. So yeah, there was lots of early warning signals that I didn't ignore them. I just, we chose to plough on. Do you think intuitively that you can, the body is almost sort of telling you as well that there's something's wrong here? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, and I think it was... Because it was driven out of, I had to, we had to change over four years. We had no choice. I think if that imperative hadn't been there, well, I know. If that imperative hadn't been there, we wouldn't have, ven- we wouldn't have ventured down that road. And I was the 98% shareholder. I own that business. It was my choice. You know, it wasn't like anyone could outvote me. It was impossible. So it was my decision. But yeah, I think if we hadn't been compelled to try new avenues, we wouldn't have gone down that route. I've made some good friends out there in the Middle East, and I still know them now and some very good contacts, but uh, we wouldn't have gone down, down that route. So how did it all conclude? Uh, we withdrew. So we ended up shutting that business down. We lost money on a very large contract out there. Uh, it didn't, didn't break the bank, but, you know, it was a, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't a great outcome at the end. So I shut down Middle East operations, withdrew all the people. There weren't many people out there that were permanent, had a couple of people out there. Uh, and then we retrenched back to the UK. Licking our wounds. And the lesson from that is? Um, so my core lesson, again, I talk to a lot of people about is stick to the knitting, stick to what you know, back to your core competence. Try different things out that are extensions of that competence in new services, new products, whatever it might be. But you know, if you're a UK-based business, I'm not saying don't expand internationally, but what I am saying is, get a client to take you there. The way that most international expansion works successfully, in my experience, is a client you're working with already has an operation in the US. They want you to deliver your service in the US, and they take you there to run that service. That gives you an anchor in your new international zone, and you expand from there. And that typically is how it works well. Because you can't service something from the UK into the US 
easily unless you've got an anchor. Because you recruit people in the US, and we've done it before, I did it in a software company, I was in. Doesn't work. Well, the US in particular is huge as well. So you don't understand the scale of it until you get there. You definitely need a few allies as well, I think, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. You need some allies, you need a client who knows, because the client will educate you on that local market, be it the US or be it the Far East, wherever it might be. The client will have people that can help you effectively stabilize your business because they want you to succeed out there. So they're going to help you. But going into a virgin territory just as a you know, new market expansion. You know, with an existing service, I think oh, it's risky. I wouldn't do it again. Okay. Tell us about your school. Mm -hmm. It's quite interesting. We said e eclectic career, and this is this is really this is really eclectic. This was one of the options, the, the strategic options I invested in. So we had from this core consulting business, we had international expansion, and we had schools expansion. Um, my core competence was not in running schools. My board members that I had was, uh, I had some very, very capable people that had run schools, had been in the education sector for many years, uh, had run private schools and public schools, um, and, and therefore, um, given that this big four-year contract was going to expire, and that we had to find other ways of generating uh, income, we decided to get into the schools business. Um, again, in retrospect, would I have got into that industry? if I didn't have to invest in options to get out of this contract that finished. No, and back to the core competence. I didn't understand the school's business well enough. I got to understand it really well over time, but I had to learn that. And it was a really, really tough, you know, learning uh, route, that's for sure. And in the end, uh, it worked out really well. So it almost kind of, it almost killed us. We had to shut one of the schools down, which was awful. Because um, I bought a school, opened it up in uh, another area, we had to close it down. It was it, it was the worst thing I ever had to do because it's children that are being educated and it's their parents that you know looking for you know, support for their children and education. That was really really tough. And again, you know, we, we just didn't have enough knowledge of how it should have worked, and that was that was a mistake. That was a big mistake. Um, but we got through that. We opened up a special needs school. Um, uh, and then that started to grow. That became very successful. Uh, we put in place a very good principle that led that activity. Uh, that then grew to 45 pupils, over 100 staff, a very successful business. Wow. Um, but on the, on the route, back to the bank story, we put more bank debt in, and the bank got very, very nervous about that investment um, or that lend uh, because... What year was this? Oh, wow, this is... When was this? 2009, 2010, somewhere around there. So, uh, right in the depth of the recession, you know, when it had all gone wrong for everyone, you know, we were on the bank's list of, is it going to work or not? Um, and they, they supported the plan. I built a workout plan with the corporate finance team, uh, and we had a workout plan. And I restructured the group company, we took a lot of the cost out, we shut things down, we focused on one asset, which was the school. We grew that business. Um, the bank saw the workout plan working. We were delivering the results. Uh, we never ran out of cash. Um, and then we got it out the other side and then we sold it. So that's a real success story. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, I learned a lot of lessons from that. But also getting from that, that for anyone that hasn't been on that entrepreneurial journey, the journey itself is very volatile. 
Extremely. Right? Especially from an emotion, emotional yeah, yeah. standpoint. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone that's not fairly resilient. So how, how do you cultivate uh, a skill set to handle the emotional changes that, that you undoubtedly go through on a journey like that? Um, well, that's a great question. Um, I don't think you know you have them until you face them. Until you face that kind of challenge, I don't think you know if you've got the resilience and the ability to come through the other side. Uh, I think you need people around you. So I'm very fortunate that my wife also runs her own business. You know, very capable uh, woman, you know, run her own business very successfully. So she'd been through those journeys before as well. And so I think she was a great support to me when it was going quite badly wrong, is how do you how do you keep going? At one point, I, I almost, I remember one day, I almost handed the business over to someone to turn around for me because I, I, I just got so exhausted by the whole thing. And then I think Vicky said to me, she said, you sure, you know, sure there's a way through this? And there was. And we worked it out together and I didn't give in and we carried on going and we came out the other side. Um, so I think you don't really know until you face that situation. I think you will see things in your life. You'll split up with a girlfriend. Is that the same level of emotional distress? Nowhere near. You know, until you've had the bank saying to you, we're going to take the keys off you and all of your investment and all of your time will be for nothing. You know, and you've got, what did I have? I had about, I had a week to agree and, or, or to arrange an agreement, a legal agreement with a number of creditors um, okay. for the workout plan. I rather have just said, well, it's going to take the keys off you. And that was about a week before Christmas, one year. You know, that was stressful. Merry Christmas. Exactly. Correct. So you had, you had somebody by your side that had experienced something on some level similar or had been through some sort of... I think it was more that she was a businesswoman and she knew these things happen and you have to kind of get through them. Uh, her father was an ex-investment banker, a uh, very, very capable guy. Uh, so again, I think the, yeah, I think I had a, a, a network of people around me whereby they'd been on either the same journey, some, well, not the same, but similar journeys, or hadn't been on the journey, but knew that's the business cycle, you know, you kind of get through it. Um, so without those people, probably you, you would have handed the keys over, right? Because you, it's almost like the hero's journey, you need the guide to... Yeah. You need the guy to show you the way. You do. Because you've never been there before. You do. And I, uh, Which is why advisors are really in, uh, useful in, yeah. in, in growing companies or companies facing challenges, right? Exactly. It's, it's that sort of guide. Like. Or they'll tell you, you know, advisors... Sometimes an advisor will say, you know what? It's, it's really hard to see how this is going to work out. So what's the safest way of winding the company down or handing the keys over? So, yeah, I think it was that I had people around me who were, they were saying, you know, don't give in. My friends, bizarre at that point, but they didn't know because they hadn't been on that kind of journey. They weren't in that kind of eye of the storm. Still filling out the Cranfield application. Still filling out the Cranfield application, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think it also shows, in, in those situations particularly, on the entrepreneurial journey, and I'm sure it's applicable to other areas of life, that that self-awareness and ability to understand the emotions that you're going through is just as if not more important than the knowledge that you have yeah. to actually grow or, or get through it. So I think the so whole... Almost from a... 
Yeah, the whole emotional intelligence thing. I think, again, if you just do your own self-assessment of your emotional intelligence, uh, your emotional, I thought, call it the EI quotient, as they call it, yeah, you, you need to have a fair amount of kind of emotional resilience. You need to have empathy. Yeah, one thing about working with banks, for any SME that's out there that's got <laughs> bank debt, um, there's, working with banks, I, I work, I, I learn. I learned that the model I thought they worked by wasn't the model at all. I assumed that, yeah, you had a bank manager and you talked to them and they worked with you. If there were problems, you resolved it with them. And then I realized there was some, this thing called credit committee. And credit committee, you can't access because it's accessed through your banking relationship manager. And credit committee is a very, very different beast. It looks at the numbers, it looks at the risks, and then it makes decisions. And your relationship manager has the ability to influence at best, but they will decide. And that, that disconnect between credit committee and the business for, a, for an SME is a huge problem. Because if you fail to manage your relationship manager correctly, and the few stakeholders around the relationship manager, um, and the way the reports are presented, um, then credit committee will just look at your business, put you on a list and work out are you at the top of the list or the bottom of the list? Um, you have no say about how that works. And you've seen the banking crisis around what happened with the advisory services that were brought in by one of the banks and how you know, badly managed that was. Um, and yeah, I think if you take on bank debt, again, you be really, really, really careful about when you take on that debt and about your ability to service that debt. If you're never, if you're always in the position where buying, um, you can always service the debt comfortably. No matter what happens to your business broadly, that's probably a good place to be. There's an old rule of thumb which is debt to EBITDA of no, no more than two to one. So I always stick to debt to EBITDA of no more than two to one, and that way it's not going to go badly wrong. Um, once you get past that and you run the numbers through, you work out your ability to pay off the capital and pay your interest becomes quite challenging. Sure. So don't overgear. Basic lessons that we that we learn probably hundreds of years ago is you know, gearing is is good to grow businesses, but be careful about how um, highly geared you get. And the private equity industry went through that many years ago, where they massively overgeared companies. Um, but yeah, I, 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 um, debt is very useful handled carefully when you're scaling up. Sure. Okay, well, you've um, had a very interesting career to date. Uh, you yes. chair companies now yep. and are a non-executive director as well. Mm -hmm. um, you, where you've had the chance to see a number of different industries, a number of different company sizes and a number of different situations, I guess you've amassed and amalgamated a series of patterns of behaviour mm -hmm. for different companies. Over that period of time, how have you seen the role of leadership affect uh, those situations? And how would you define leadership in order that you have seen something through that lens? Um, so, the leader in most of the businesses that I work with, they tend to be um, owner managed businesses. So, the founder is still the leader. Uh, typically, 
and typically their scale is they've got between one and about five million pound turnover broadly. And the founder is still there. Um, and in terms of a leadership role, very, very commonly what you see is that leader, that founder, is very sales oriented. There's a de definitely a common trait of the, and it's one of the curses of the entrepreneur, is the founder-led sales model. You, most founders can get a business to between one and five million turnover with not many other salespeople around them, typically. Um, five's hard, you can certainly get to three with probably just a founder-led sales model broadly. And that, make, that can make the leader a bit one-dimensional, is that it's all about growth, but not at any cost. It's profitable growth. But they may not spend that much time with their people building a culture. They may not be great at finance, so they found a finance director part-time. Um, they may not be brilliant at working with staff day-to-day -to, -day to deliver the service. And so of the companies I work with, which tend to be people-oriented business, so they tend to be in digital marketing, professional services, something that's got quite heavy people content. One of the challenges that those companies face is, if I'm going to get to the next stage of growth, just being the founder-led salesperson is going to be a challenge. Uh, because if that person takes their eye off the ball, and I've had two or three companies I've talked to where that's been the case, sales will drop, um, and then the staff that left in the business, they go, well, you know, we've gone from like two million down to one and a half million. What happened? The entrepreneur founder is never going to admit what happened, but the reality is they may have taken their eye off the ball. They could be looking at another business they're starting. It could be that they're just exhausted by the journey. It could be the market's changed. There's a massive over-reliance on that one founder. And so what I'm often brought in to do is say, okay, so we do want to grow to the next stage. So we need to... Um, put together a more coherent strategy, more coherent vision. We need to build a board. We need to build a management team below the board. We need to put in place some basic governance. You know, entrepreneurship and governance don't often go together. No. <laughs> <laughs> As we know. Um, but some basic governance around running board meetings and putting in place some KPIs and you know, working out what your sales dashboard should look like and your CRM system should look like. And, you know, which all leads you to on the journey of, that's all about if you do want to at some point have the option to sell your business, you're going to have to invest in some basic infrastructure and some basic governance so that when someone comes to do their DD, it passes DD. And I believe that, again, a lot of entrepreneurs that build their businesses up, not everyone should sell their business. It's not the right thing. But you want to have the option to. So you need to be in a position whereby if I either had to or wanted to, I could sell my business. There's a wonderful book called Built to Sell, which maps out that sort of okay. model from owner-managed to, right. to removing the owner such that it becomes sellable. Exactly. And because obviously, as you say, the the owner brings in all of the sales. It's not a business. It's not a business. And the choir says, well, what am I buying if you buy it? Correct. And so when I sold one of my businesses, I'd made myself effectively redundant. I was chairman of the board. I had no day to day operational, uh, operational involvement at all on purpose. It was all down to the leadership team that ran that business. And that was a 100 people business. 
and I chair the board every month, and we put in place a governance system, uh, and it passed DD first time. Did you find it difficult to not get involved in that situation? No, actually. No, I, I actually am very good at delegating to someone else to let them do that. In fact, my preference is work out how it works, build a little model, find someone to run it, and then they can adapt it. But I always say, uh, there's an old adage, never outsource something you don't understand. Okay. You see companies outsourcing all sorts of things. Mm. And it's like, if you don't understand it and you couldn't work it out yourself, how on earth are you going to manage a third-party provider to run that service on your behalf? It's never going to work. Yeah, and there's all sorts of hidden risk because you don't have that understanding. Back to managing risk. If you don't understand it, you can't manage it. So, you know, outsourcing something you don't understand because it's convenient is a very bad idea. So that, back to that leadership statement on the question, and how would you actually define it yourself? So what does leadership mean to me? It means that um, as a leader, you're ta- you are taking people on a journey. So you do have to have the ability to create a vision. You do have to create a reason for people to come on you with that kind of vision. You need followers. Any leader is only a leader because people follow them. And so you have to find a way of getting people to follow you. Or why do people follow? There's a great, great quote by Charlie Munger. Okay. Uh, which is, look at the incentive and I'll tell you the outcome. Very good. So when halfway look at their businesses, they're like, how do we incentivize management? Because that will tell us exactly what outcome we're going to get. And as a leader, you have to think about the same thing. With your followers, what's their motivation? What's their incentive to do what you want them to do? You've got to work out what it is that's driving those individuals. Why do they come to work? Yes, they want to get paid, but that's not a reason to stay. It's not a reason to build something. You have to find out what's driving them. And you have to work out the kind of person you want in your business that is motivated by the kind of things that you're putting in place, the incentive plan you're putting in place. The incentives could be working for big brands. So a great thing for entrepreneurs and small companies in their recruitment plan is if their accounts are FTSE 100 accounts, any young person starting out on their journey, if they can say, I worked on this huge you know, Shell program or BNP Paribas program, it gives them a credibility and it stretches them. Because those clients are very demanding, People like being stretched. So I've got a friend who uh, works in digital marketing as a designer. Right. And she worked for a small, I mean, I'm based, I live in Kent. So right. she works for a small Kentish company working on small accounts. And she moved, she's very talented, but probably not pushed as, right. as you've discussed. And she moved to another organization. And part of the culture there is that they work on large accounts. Right. You know, they have that. So she's gone from working on, say, small building company accounts, nothing wrong with that, nope. you know, still still need to do the design work, etc. Yeah. to working on Disney and Pixar stuff. And she's gone from being talented but not incentivized yeah. to being talented and driven. Yeah. And how can I how can I evolve my skill set such that I can service this account better yeah. moving forwards? So I I sort of totally understand. That's a very good example. It's a very good illustration of that, I believe, what motivates people. 
Uh, yeah, I, I had at one point 120 consultants working with me on a very big uh, program uh, in the country that I ran. And when I talked to them all about why do, why do you work with me? Why, why do you work with the company that I kind of run? And they all said, we were working on educational reform. It had real, genuine social impact. Now, can you measure that social impact? Hard to tell. But we ran some amazing programs and all the consultants, these, these consultants had worked in financial services, investment banks, and all of them said, it's the most motivated we've ever been in our entire careers. So those consultants were driven by a sense of mission? They were. Basically. It was a common mission. They, they, they did want to change the system. Now, you, you, you could dig up the history and work out did it work or not. I think that's a, a kind of a bit secondary. The point was, it was a common mission. So in respect to this leadership discussion we're having then and, and galvanising a workforce to yep. behind a common mission or whatever, Given advice to, say, a company that turns over one, two million pounds, you know, again, a lot of the listeners or supper club members, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and they're doing quite well. They've got a product. People want to buy it. Yeah. There's something here. They want to grow. How, what, what advice would you give them regarding how do I get the right people on the bus? In the right seats. And how do I know what bus I even want? All I know is I've got a great product. And So, um... Probably the best piece of advice I could possibly give is to watch a video. So watch the Simon Sinek video called Start With Why. Really and when video. you see that video, you've obviously seen it yourself. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll put that in the notes. Yeah, we'll put it in the description. It's a 10-minute TED Talk, I think it is. Um, and it really changed my view on, if you look at the successful companies and look at successful people, depending on how you, how you define success. But Simon Sinek did a whole lot of research onto why was Martin Luther King such an amazing leader and why did he have such a huge following? And there are all sorts of reasons um, about the, you know, the economy at that time and about you know, racism in the South, and there were lots of reasons. However, there was something about, he started with why. I have a dream. As Simon Sinek says, he didn't say, I have a plan. He said, I had a dream. <laughs> I have a dream that one day. And most of us know the opening lines. At least we know the opening lines. And the tone. And the tone. Correct. And, and the crowd that he stood in front of when he filled that entire area with people. Um, and they didn't advertise it. That was a um, kind of crowd that came together that came together virally. Um, that is the essence of what you have to do. You've got to work out why do we exist. And then when you worked out why we exist, so he talks about the how, what, and why. Or I think it's like the what are we, how do we do it, and then why do we exist. And when you start with the why, and then work out the kind of how and then the what in that sequence, then you can work out what kind of company you are then you can work out what kind of people you need to be on that journey with you. And by that, I mean, I don't mean the functional skills, the, the type of people, the, the characteristics of the person you want. And I guess if, you, you want. if you're starting from that perspective, you're also creating a narrative. Yeah, a story. Which is much more compelling oh. for employees, for customers. 
for stakeholders at large. I think it sets a, a culture almost as well, doesn't it? It defines business, the culture. Yeah. When they go to the pub and talk to their mates, they don't talk about the you know the functional role that they perform and that they they talk about and work on this amazing thing. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Yeah. It's amazing. We ran this social marketing campaign, it did this. It was amazing. I'm flying a space rocket to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> tell me more. Yeah, exactly. Tell me more. So Simon Sinek is doing a lot of good work in, in that space. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's a very, very talented guy. Leaders eat last talk as yes, well. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Which Tim reminds me of. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, you mentioned Martin Luther King. Are there any other leaders, past or present, that you respect and why? Um, I think Branson. I don't know much about Branson's story, apart from what you read in the, the broad populace and, and the press. But it strikes me he got something right. You know, he managed to galvanise people behind uh, kind of a culture and a vision. I think in the early days, he got a lot of things wrong. But I think in the very early days, when he set up Virgin Records, um, that I, I think he, he didn't pay his VAT bill, I think. Um, so he got loads of things wrong in business. But he was a visionary and is a visionary. And he kind of cultivates, uh, kind of a, or, yeah, motivates people around a certain culture. Um, and he's still to this day, I believe, on uh, his island. I think he still invites 100 entrepreneurs to his island to come and learn. And he invites people that have been successful and those that are on the start of their journey. And they have a kind of a workshop. That's fantastic. And I think that's great. I think that's the kind of, you know, he, he seems to have been able to rise above all of the stuff that's gone really well and just say, you know what, we need to help other people succeed. He is someone that did bet the farm in the early days, mind, yeah. you know, when he started Virgin Airways. Yeah. I think he put everything on the line, if, if not more than everything on the line. Yeah. As I say, it, my way is not everyone's way. I think when he bought, I think when he backed Mike Oldfield, people were like, you're mad. <laughs> it's some bloke playing some bells. But he's, really? <laughs> he strikes me as the sort of character that had that, you know, in an alternative reality not worked out. Yeah. He would have just dusted himself off. Yeah, yeah. We, we will we'll never know, but no. certainly he would have tried. He Whether or not he would have made a success of it, who knows? Exactly. So, so I guess in, in, you can learn from him that, you know, that don't give up or try again. Or I think he's very resilient. The worst that can happen. Yeah, I think he's very resilient as a person. And I think he's very charismatic. You know, he's done a great job of, of building brands or building a brand. You know, building a virgin brand and then, and then having lots of companies below it. He's not integrated those companies. True. Yeah, they're all separate companies. Small bets, in, Small in a bets. sense. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, almost his own, almost his own investment portfolio of companies. Isn't he's, 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 he's his own venture capital company. Yeah, very, good. very successfully. Yeah. And um, you've mentioned Charlie Munger a couple of times yeah. over this talk. Who is someone that I've read a lot about and enjoy his his work. And he he said something about. Uh, in order to, I think Warren Buffett said Charlie Munger had the best 30 second brain right. of anyone he knew. So he could, someone could un explain a situation and Charlie Munger would understand and be able to ask very sensible questions very quickly. Yeah. So he would have made a very effective consultant. He would. In that <laughs> and when probed why he could do this, you know, was it innate talent, etc., he said effectively something like, you need a lattice work of mental models to hang your hat off of. Yes. So he said people acquire knowledge but they don't acquire it in any way that they can build upon that structure. 
So have a lattice work, and he, and he effectively said you need to take the main models from all of the hard sciences, yep. the, the key ones, not not mathematically, but just conceptually. Yeah. Um, so uh, in engineering, perhaps trade-offs, uh, constraints. In um, maybe we, we talked about scale in mathematics, or yep. uh, we can take Newton's laws of motion in, in physics about the size of things, or and so on, and use those models to try and understand the mechanics of the situation Correct. that is occurring. And then secondly, to look at all of the human biases yeah. that occur, so the, the psychological models, so confirmation, confirmation bias, some costs, cognitive dissonance, that sort of thing, to try and understand how you or other stakeholders are colouring the situation as well. Exactly. In order to... And, and I read that probably five or six years ago, and that was sort Spot of... On incredible for me. It's like, okay, now I can systematically learn these models and find their models, right? So, yeah. so I'm I'm going to make mistakes because they're models, they're not reality. Exactly. But it's a nice place to start to try and get something. So some basic models. So I did the same thing because um, I'm a, remember I go back to being my kind of my learning style, I'm a visual learner. So an experiential learner as well, but I'm visual. So one of the things the MBA taught me was there's loads of great models. So, very simple stuff like you know, the Ansoff matrix or um, the Porter's Five Forces model. Porter's model still, it's in your head, it's a simple model. It's got a circle in the center and it's got four around the outside. And suppliers, customers, new entrants, substitutes, and then competitive rivalry. So, even though it was like 20 years ago, my MBA, I still remember the model. That simple model allows you to think about what industry this company's in and how much power it's got. So quite quickly, you can come up with some reasonable insights yes. based upon, or some reasonable assumptions about how that company's position in its industry. As the companies get bigger, it gets much harder because my experience is having worked at micro SME up to global FTSE 100 corporates, the more you get towards the bigger companies, the leaders in those companies are much more aware of their industry and their context. So the, the issues they face are far more complex. So it's quite hard to quickly get a handle on what's going on in this business because they've kind of been there for many years trying to look out the same thing. At a smaller scale business, because you're on your own, there's 10 of you and you're selling and you're trying to do some marketing and you're running around, it's, it's harder for them to see the context of what's going on. So, so sort of denser problem almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're more complex problems. The higher up, the, the bigger the company, typically the more complex the issues are. So my my kind of um, so my approach to that um, point, Joe, I think is very relevant. If someone says to me, "I'd like to be my advisor," I say, "Okay, so that's that, that's great. I'm yeah, I'm potentially interested." Um, just before we get started. I'd like to do a bit of my own just background DD. And they say, what do you mean? I say, well, um, send me, first of all, before we meet, send me your business plan, send me your financials, um, and send me your, your basic uh, governance structure, your you know, shareholding, et cetera, and your articles um, before we even meet. And then I take those and I work out what industry they're in and I work out what the plan says and I work out what the financials say and then uh, I form a hypothesis of what some of the issues might be that they're facing uh, based upon a three-year historic financial and the business plan going forward. And then I have a meeting with the founder. And that's, 
That's all. I don't charge for that. That's just so I select who I do that with quite carefully, and then we have a meeting. And everyone I've done that with has said, "You took time to understand my business. You've got some models in your head of how these things work. Um, you've mapped my situation onto a model and got some interesting insights." And then I say, "Great, okay. So now we're on the same page." I say, "Now let me meet your finance director." And your ops director uh, and your MD, or whatever you've got. Don't, don't preposition it, just say to them, give us all to Mike, he'll ask some questions, yeah, we'll just think about talking to him about being an advisor. And that then gives me the personal side as well as the rational side. And I work out then who's sat around this board table, even if it's not. Three, two, one. Yeah, so once I've kind of looked at some information, talked to the founder, had a conversation face-to-face, -face, I then talked to the FD, MD, uh, Ops Director, um, and I talked through kind of the things that I found out, um, and I try and get their insights and their views. And what always comes down to that is they're quite revealing. Because it's an anonymized interview, you have to start it off with, I'm going to ask you some questions, you're going to give me some feedback, I'm going to anonymise it, wrap it all up together, and then present that back to the board and the founder. Um, they get, you know, they, they're very revealing about what they see as being the issues and what are the more human aspects of the problems that the company's facing. Similar to what I've done in SME consulting. Um, um, and I, I, that was separate to Mungo. I was more from an audit career, uh, right. which was, you know, from my sins, <laughs> um, which was, you know, get the people even the staff on the smaller companies as possible around the table anonymously and say, you know, what's, what's right, what's wrong, where are the bottlenecks? Yeah. Uh, what do you see that perhaps people higher up can't see that, that creates a problem further up the chain? And then you amalgam, you know, you synthesize and amalgamate and find the patterns, etc. And you go, okay, from a humanistic standpoint or from the mechanics, these parts don't quite work exactly. so well. You know, it's part of a bigger problem here. And then you can sort of knit it all together. And in fact, if you took that and, and you sat inside a large consulting company, and I go back 10, 15 years, that's exactly what we were doing. Uh, we called them, it was a brown paper exercise. So we'd put a big piece of brown paper on the wall. Uh, we'd have swim lanes. We'd interview a diagonal slice across the organisation. Um, so you'd probably interview, you know, if you took an SME uh, of 20 people, you might interview six people, uh, and then you aggregate that feedback together. You might run a survey monkey at the same time, so that you get actually quite a lot of data, and then you stick it on posters and you stick it on the round paper on the wall, and then you let the founder walk through this message and these insights. Uh, and it's the first time they've actually had something real presented back to them about their own company. So for any founders listening, that's a very useful exercise to undertake if you uh, want to improve the operational and cultural efficiencies within your organisation. It's often quite a big disconnect between what, say, the founder thinks is going to be said and what is actually said. And, and you can imagine, if you're the founder and you walk up to one of your new junior staff that's just joined, are they likely to say to you, the culture sucks because of X, Y, and Z? Three bags full, sir, yeah. Yeah, they're going to go, it's all great, I'm really enjoying it. So nobody tells the emperor he's naked. Correct. And so it's, the, it's very hard for the founder, genuinely, to get really open, genuine feedback. And so, actually, if you are going to use advisors, you know, use them in a very limited capacity, use them in something that is very targeted, you know, get someone in to talk to your employees about your organisation if you're looking at scaling up, and get them to talk to your clients.
Because again, another lens that they don't see it through is what their clients think of them often. Which is hugely important. And yeah, often overlooked. Very good point. Well, we've asked you some tough work-oriented and uh, business-oriented questions. I'm going to ask you some more general uh, questions. Okay. Um, how do you maintain your well-being? You know, so some of the stuff you've done has been hugely stressful. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the people listening to this are working all hours. Yeah. Um, struggling to maintain balance, uh, whatever that looks like to you. And we all have different coping mechanisms and strategies. Yeah. You know, I personally uh, try to go to the gym or play sports or, or try and make time to read. Um, but sometimes you just lose track of time and, and yeah. you end up working. So, so you know, from, from your experience, what, what, what have you found works for you? Um, so there's a few things that, that have worked. I'll tell you the things that, that I still struggle with as well. Um, so the things that have worked is making time for uh, my family, my wife and my, uh, my young boy. Um, he's only six, so if I don't make time for him now, there's no point in asking to make time with him in 10 years' time. So you have to make time for him now. And you want to, and you need to. So I try and carve out as much time as I can to be with him. So does that mean family is a core tenant for you? Yeah, I think it is. Because at the end of the day, that's all that's left. If there's no family, then what are you kind of here for? In many ways, sitting on a desert island with lots of money, you know, on your own. I'm not sure that's a great outcome of life for me personally. Um, I think people do. I think you've got to think about. There was a book years ago I read about which ladder is your um, wall leaning against, and you climb this ladder, you get to the top, and you look up behind you, and you actually you meant to climb that wall and not this one. So you have to work out what your what your kind of life uh, ambitions are, really. Um, so one is, I think, yeah, yeah I, I I try as much as I can to carve time out for my family. And do you um, do you create segments to make sure you do it, or do you? Um, it's a bit more fluid than that. Um, there are some set segments. So when our son comes home from school, um, so what we're doing now is that I, I take him into school or I pick him up from school. My wife does the same, and um, that's great time because you can spend a bit of time together. So that kind of we cut him from school, we take him to school, you've got 40 minutes in the car, uh, which is great. Uh, so that's a good kind of structured time for doing it. Then there's more flexible time when he runs in, because uh, we work from home, you know, he's done something at school, uh, just stopping what you're doing and focusing on him for a bit, you know, is a great way of, uh, of doing it. Um, I think other things that work are, so this might sound a bit counterintuitive, but just extending the day is, yeah, a lot of people say you've got to like stop at a certain time and carve out time for yourself. For me, personally, I'd much rather have a, the day starts at eight, and it might finish at eight or nine, but during that time, I've been a bit more flexible with what I do. Yeah, I mean, I'm exactly the same, actually. Uh, as I said, I have a night out, so often I'll do something for a couple of hours in a day that's non-work related. Exactly. And late into the night, for some reason, my creative juices come and that's when I bash out work. As you know, Will, yeah. when we work together in apartments, <laughs> while you're looking like a zombie in the house. <laughs> I got to half 11 and was like, I I'm going to have to leave now. <laughs> Just see so your eyes getting wider and wider. <laughs> Something else that I think, um, so I like a glass of wine. Um, I've got into a bad habit about two years ago whereby because I was working late into the evening, I had a glass of wine at like seven. But then you have two, or then it's three. Now if you do that every night, you know, that's a very, very, very 
bad habits get into um, if you're not exercising and you're drinking a bottle of wine effectively every two days. You know, that becomes quite a problem. And so I'd, I'd put on weight at that point. And so, yeah, you have to like kind of have a self-discipline that says, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to have a glass of tonic water rather than a gin and tonic. It's some simple stuff, you know. Um, but yes, I think that's one thing that you have to do as well, is to keep your life balance kind of together. And reading, I like to read quite a lot. So I read things that are business related. Um, I don't read much um, kind of fiction. Um, I, I, I find reading books about what people have done just interesting. And that switches me off from the day-to-day -day work. Hmm. Is there any uh, book that you frequently read, come back to, or gift to other people? Um, oh, <laughs> there is one which, I've, which I have sent to other people, but again, it, it's not typically one entrepreneur would read. There's a book called What Colour Is My Parachute, which is a career book. But the reason it's really good is it actually, it's, it's an exercise-based book, and you go through the exercises to find out basically who you are and what motivates you. So if you're going through a kind of a bit of a transition in your life and career, it's a very good book to take a step back with. And in a weekend, you can kind of read it, do the exercises and come out with some interesting thoughts. I've given it to three or four people as a gift. And the name of that book was? Uh, it's called What Colour Is My Parachute? Do you remember the author at all? I don't know. Okay, we'll, we'll check that out yeah. and put that in the notes. <clears throat> and are you a film guy? Do you like watching? Love watching films. Do you have any, what sort of films do you like? Oh, uh, my word. I won't say what's your favourite film, no. so I hate that question. No. But if you can name <laughs> some films. I've got a few films, so if I'm on my own, um, because Vicky's gone out, or because I just want to watch something different, I, I quite like re-watching old films. Mm. Um, so... Glen Gary, Glen Ross is a great film. Alec Baldwin uh, about Sally. Uh, is that the ABC? Yeah, that's so right. So it's in the YouTube clip, yeah, right? ABC. That's always be closing. Always be closing. Is that where he says, uh, yeah. these are the blah. These are the Glen Gary leads. These are the Glen Gary leads, <laughs> yeah. And coffee's for closers. <laughs> that's right, exactly. It's, a, it's, it's just a very, very interesting psychological uh, kind of film. Another one is 12 Angry Men, which is a brilliant film. The original film that was done got the actors now, uh, based in New York, black and white film, that's a great film. And that's all about human beings and about interaction and about how we're motivated and our assumptions and our preconceptions and our history and why we make decisions and how you get behind that and how you bring people around. Uh, it's just a, yeah, it's a fascinating film. Um, so yeah, stuff like that. What else would I rewatch? Oh, and so Where Eagles Dare? Is a great film. Um, it's an escapist film. The Great Escape is a great, great film. Escape. Yeah, The Great Escape I'll watch time and time again because it's you know what's coming next. It's got a real great. It's got a great story. It's true. Uh, it's about people fighting through adversity and not giving up. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's we're gonna have some great resources. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a list together. Get through all of this. I think you're a film buff, and then someone brings up four films <laughs> yeah. you've not watched. We both look a bit sheepish. <laughs> Excellent. You mentioned family being mm -hmm. super important to you. Uh, if you could have three things in life only that you could maximise or spend time on, so family, yeah. health, work, 
or career, sport, hobbies, mm-hmm. whatever they may be, um, what would they be and why? And I can't remember who said it. I think it was maybe Martin Zuckerberg's sister or something. But uh, you, of all of the things, you can only do three effectively right. out there. So you might as well pick three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Which may or may not be true, but it's, it makes for an interesting question. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, so, the three, if I could only have three things. So, one would have to be obviously family. Maximizing my time with my family, uh, I think, would be absolutely up there, definitely, for number one. Um, Self development, just kind of like just learning and working with other people and other companies and sharing learning to help them develop. I'm quite a, there's quite a big thing in me about helping others develop. Would it be as important to you if you couldn't share what you've learned? If I couldn't share what I've learned, it would be a bit pointless, I think. So it's actually it's an integral part. I'm a, I'm a big, I want to share what I've learned with other people I think to help others. It goes back to what we were saying right at the beginning with um, sort of peer-to-peer learning. Easier, the best way to learn is to teach somebody else, isn't it? You have to fully understand something to then you impart your knowledge on somebody else. So. Definitely. And I think the third one is, um, people would argue with this, but um, for me, um, enough money. Um, given my background, uh, money provides for me security. So having a happy family, um, I, I want enough money. We don't need loads of money. We just need enough money to be able to have holidays and spend time together and eat nice food and without sufficient money you, you can't do that. It's the security. It's the security right? for me. You know, I don't back to the island. I don't want to be able to buy a massive island and sit on it with my family. Can't sort of purchase well. <laughs> exactly. Entrepreneurs <laughs> Island, imagine all of us together. Oh my god. Um that would be terrifying. Um so no I do uh, so money is an outcome of things I do to generate money. Uh, but yeah, money is important, definitely, yeah. So family, self-development, and the ability to share what you've learned. So yeah. that's teaching, in a sense, I guess. And, uh, and security. 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 Yeah, security. security. Wonderful. If you could, today, talk to yourself from 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so where were we 20 years ago, for a bit of context? So I'm 54 now, so 34. 34. So what was I doing at 34? 98. 1998, I was at KPMG as a consultant. Okay, so if you could talk to your KPMG self yep. and impart some wisdom, some advice, a lesson, mm-hmm. what would you say to Mike from uh, 20 years ago? I thought about this the other day without you asking the question in advance. Um, I was walking down the street with a friend the other day and we were talking about exactly this kind of topic. And I said, in 1998, I was working, as it happens, in the payments industry uh, 20 years ago. Uh, and we were doing a project for a client in the payments industry. And what I would say to myself then is, this industry is going to be massively important for mankind because it's the basic way in which we live our lives. Everyone has to buy things. Everyone has to borrow money. Everyone has to pay each other. You You go out for dinner. So if you're interested in the payments industry, conceptually, then go to Silicon Valley and start working out who you can work with in the payments industry or the new payments industry to build a new payments model, build something new because the industry is pretty broken because I knew it was broken because I've worked in it. 
had I done that and bumped into Elon, Elon and yeah, was it Peter Thiel? With the PayPal Mafia, they called them, didn't they? The PayPal Mafia. Then who knows? And I think it's that in 20 years ago, I wasn't, I wasn't looking. I was doing. And I was so busy doing, I forgot to look at what's going on around me. So take a step back and find the emerging trend? Or no, find... take five steps back. You know, take a long step back and look at what's going on around you. And what's important in society at that time. So to put you on the spot then, Mike, for, <laughs> for aspiring 30-somethings. Yeah. yeah only, only because we're talking about 34-year-old Mike, not because I have a preference for 30-somethings. No, no, indeed. And then you took five steps back on their behalf. What would you see? So um, I'm not sure I can answer that question. Um, I've been trying to do that at the moment. I've been trying to work out. If something's in front of you, AI, machine learning, you're probably too late. Because by the time you've learned it and worked out and got some deep experience, if you believe in the 10,000 hours rule, 10,000 hours is, I don't know what it is, five years worth of learning, you've probably missed the opportunity. So you need to see something that's just on the horizon. So I'm now trying to work out, what is it that's just on the horizon, which is gonna change a lot in the next kind of 10, 20 years? The one thing I have seen, which, which may be a little bit of an insight, maybe, we're moving broadly towards a rental economy. It's happening now, so we know that. Less asset ownership and more um, rental. So Airbnb? Yeah, because we're all trying to basically, yeah, young people can't afford to buy assets, so they're renting the asset instead. And also it's experiential. Uh, there appears to be a trend of people want to experience something rather than own something to give them pleasure. Um, but people also want security and they want connectedness. So I think the connectedness thing is definitely something that's going to be a trend, which is we've all now grown up with being on our laptops, being on our mobile phones, connected via Facebook, in Instagram, instant messaging, email. It's all virtual, non-verbal, non-physical, electronic. We need to get back to how do we connect to each other? And I think number eight to seven is an example of being connected is smaller groups that have something in common where they feel comfortable with each other and they can help each other and work together. So if I was 34, I would look at something in the how do you how do we make the how do we make people more feel more connected? Sure with where they live and their environment. Well, we're saying actually um, the internet 20 years ago was more that way than it is now. Yes. With forums, etc. Exactly. Because um, there were fewer people using it. And you're seeing people move away from, I, I don't have the data, but I'm, I'm, I think you're seeing people move away from Facebook and the large social networks. LinkedIn. Certainly it's something I've moved away from. Yeah. Um, and if you look at tech and Hacker type communities, indie hackers is a, is a great example. Uh, something I'm on. It, it's a community of people. That's a forum based community, but you right. can have messaging based as well um, with a podcast and so on. But it's around a common theme, which is you know what project are you working on? Yeah. How, how how did you achieve uh, recurring revenue? Yeah. Uh, what were the pain points? What were your customer acquisition costs? 
how how do you about go about building a startup if you are a non-technical yes. founder? And and so there's a common common interest there that unites. That's right. And it, it creates almost that tribe mentality, I guess, which you know, for better or worse, it it, it, it certainly creates a group of connectedness. Yeah. Um, so yeah, fully understand where you're coming from there. Last question, Mike. Um, what do you hope to achieve in the next ten years? You know, so again, if you could talk to yourself in ten years' time, what, what's the sage at 65, 64 yep. um, saying to, to Mike now? What, what what looks like a good life to you over that period? Bearing in mind your priorities are probably different, somewhat different to say 20, 30 yeah. years ago. So if you play back the what are the three things? Family, sharing, security, and reverse them. Well, in ten years' time. I need to have generated enough security to allow me to have time with my family and time to learn and share. That's what break would look like. So I kind of, I'm compelled to not put security first, but keep on thinking about how do I generate more security? Because that will then deliver the other outcomes. Because no security, I can't do the other two. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's thank been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Really, really, really. And uh, yeah, thank you to the listeners. Uh, speak soon. Cheers.